Hey all, welcome back to the Fire and Water Cooking Podcast. I'm your host, Darren, and today we got a couple great guests, Mr. Paul Arguin and Christopher Taylor. They were presenters at the International Sous Vide Summit in July, and they're authors of a new book called The New Pie, and they use sous vide in their pie recipes. I'll be right back with Christopher and Paul. Smoking, grilling, getting hot and hotter. Hey all, before we get on to the show, I want to talk to you for a second about Instacart. Instacart's a great service that allows you to do all your grocery shopping online, and they can get you your groceries in as fast as one hour. They connect you with personal shoppers in your area that know your markets, and they can get them from your favorite stores. They find all the great buys and smart suggestions for you online to save you money. They pick the freshest produce and they check your eggs and make sure they're not cracked. Check them out, guys. Instacart is offering free delivery on your first order of over $35 on the link below. Check them out. And now, on to the show. Welcome back to the Fire and Water Cooking Podcast. I'm Darren, I'm your host. And today we have a couple of great guests, Paul Arguin and Christopher Taylor from The New Pie. They also have a blog, website, Facebook page called Flour Sugar Butter. Welcome, Chris and Paul. Hello, Darren. Thanks for uh, having us on. Thank you. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourselves? Tell us where you guys are from, what you do for a living. and Yeah, so uh, Paul and I live in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, we are... Uh, we like to call ourselves home baking enthusiasts. We bake as a hobby, and then, you know, we started entering baking competitions over a period of about a decade, and that has now morphed into our first book that just came out in March 2019 called The New Pie, Modern Techniques for the Classic American Dessert. Yeah. So as Chris mentioned, we're, we're home baking enthusiasts. We're, we're not trained pastry chefs. Uh, we've uh, learned uh, everything we, we know about baking uh, uh, we, we, uh, from our extensive cookbook library. So uh, we've both been collecting cookbooks uh, most of our lives, and we've got quite a collection now. And, and we read them like, like you would a, a textbook. So that's, that's basically how we've gotten all of our basic knowledge and training. We go back to them all the time uh, as reference materials. And uh, from that, uh, along with all of the, uh, I guess, the the experience we've had during the, the competitive baking, that's how we've uh, sort of amassed uh, uh, our, our knowledge base. Well, both of you guys are scientists to, to begin with, right? So you're both trained scientists. You both work for the CDC. So I think that has a lot to do with it because there's a lot of science in baking. And that's one of the reasons why I don't like to do baking. I like to cook <laughs> otherwise. But, you know, when it comes to baking, it tends to be a little bit more uh, rigorous for me. So let's talk about your scientific background a little bit? Uh, sure. Yeah. So I'm a physician. Um, I, uh, after I, I did my undergraduate studies, uh, actually in zoology, I went to medical school at uh, Georgetown University, uh, went on to get uh, do my uh, residency in internal medicine. I uh, did a, a specialization, a, a fellowship in infectious diseases. Um, and I've just continued to specialize after that. In fact, for most of my career at the uh, Centers for Disease Control, um, I was focused only on two infectious diseases, uh, mostly rabies and malaria. Um, and in fact, just this past uh, spring, uh, right around when the book came out, um, I hit my 22-year mark at CDC. So I was eligible for my military retirement. So I'm actually no longer employed at CDC. And um, I have a PhD from the University of Pittsburgh in epidemiology. Um, which is a study of epidemics and um, disease trends in populations. And uh, my focus is on older adult health with a focus on um, Alzheimer's disease and other forms of cognitive decline. So how did those scientific backgrounds help you with the baking? Well, um, I'm going to pick up on something that you said, that uh, being that baking is such a science that uh, you find that intimidating sometimes. I'm going to say that, that you really shouldn't. Basically, when people say baking is a science, all that means is that your actions have consequences. 
Um, and, and that's the same like in, in, in the regular cooking that you do in, in your day-to-day life. So just what I mean by that is that if, if let's say you decide, you know, I'm going to throw a handful of salt into this beef stew I'm making, um, you have to know that that's going to have a, a huge impact on the saltiness of your stew. This, it, it really is the same thing in baking. Just the one difference is you don't really get that immediate uh, feedback sometimes in your beef stew. You can taste what you just did and go, what have I done? Uh, how, how can I fix this? If you did that to your apple pie, let's say, you're not going to notice that until it's finally finished baking. It's out of the oven. It's cooled. It's several hours later. And there's really no way to fix it at that point. Yeah, I kind of I, I get where you're coming from because it is you can mess up big time just in regular cooking. I'm talking where I used to try to attempt to make, you know, homemade bread and, you know, stuff with yeast is involved and, you know, different temperatures and cakes, you know, or a cake can fall if it, you know, if it's a certain humidity in the room. I mean, that's where I think baking is just gets kind of uh, intimidating to a lot of us, you know, that are, we're comfortable in the kitchen until a point where it gets to, you know, pastries and, and cakes and breads and stuff like that, where it can be a little bit more, you can't, you know, you can kind of, switch a recipe up if you over salted it you can kind of fix it you know like you said immediately but when it's you know bread or something you know it'll fall in the oven and it's you got to throw it out you know there's no saving it (laughs) but then i guess uh, my my wearing my scientist hat if let's say that happened to me if i was baking a bread and and it fell in the oven i'm going to ask why and i'm going to sort of go back and look at my steps because odds are i made a a critical error because if, if i have a reliable uh, source of information, and let's say, I mean, there's, there's cookbooks that we know uh, are, are really good sources of recipes. If we follow those recipes, it, they really shouldn't fail un, un, unless you did something wrong. And, and sometimes sometimes it, it's as simple as, you know, you got distracted and you forgot to add the yeast or whatever. I mean, there, there, there's something that you, you didn't realize you didn't actually do. or But uh, you can go back and sort of you know, look at where your, your steps might have uh, uh, taken you wrong. And the other possibility, of course, is that uh, you may have been using a bad recipe. We, we know that there's things like that out there too. Or a bad ingredient. You know, uh, if you used yeast that's, you know, not live anymore, that's been sitting on the shelf forever, you know. Absolutely, yeah. You know, there's things like that. Or you're using, you know, the wrong type of flour that the recipe called for. And I know I've seen people do that all the time where they just, they don't think, you know, a certain ingredient will matter much. And then it does. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And and that's the point right there. And you see that a lot on... um, on uh, baking blogs or on uh, uh, social media, watching people who cook, they'll say, well, you know, I, I followed this recipe uh, and I hated it. Uh, just so that you know, I didn't use any eggs. I used applesauce instead or, or something along those lines. And then for crying out loud, that's that's a terrible choice of a substitution. Yeah. I mean, I've seen that a lot. <laughs> you see it in the regular cooking too, you know. Right. I, didn't, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't use salt because I don't like salt. So mm-hmm. I used, you know, something totally different. And it's like, well, no wonder it tastes like, you know, garbage. Yeah. yeah. So I thought it was bland. Well, that's, now you know why. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I mean, especially, you know, I deal a lot with, with sous vide and barbecue. And I, I see a lot of people that come into these in newer type cooking methods like sous vide and just think they can use it like any other cooking method. You know, well, I, I did it for, you know, two hours at, at this temperature and then, you know, it came out. I said, well, where'd you get that time and temp from? Well, I just pulled it out of my, you know, out of the air. That's, <laughs> that's what I would normally cook a steak at or something, you know? Yeah. I don't understand because there's so many time and temp guides that you can use, but uh, yeah. So people do it all the time, no matter what. All right. So what got you guys, I, I, I kind of read it your history a little bit and read some of the articles that were written about you. You kind of started out like by accident. Like I guess Chris was one of the the first ones to enter into a baking competition. Is that right? Yeah, we, um, we, we both entered, um, there was a pie baking competition, um, here near Atlanta and, uh, we both entered, I entered in the sweet pie category and Paul entered in the savory pie category with a uh, spicy, uh, meat pie. And I ended up winning the blue ribbon in the sweet pie category. And that was sort of the start of, you know, our, our competitive venture. You know, after that, we started doing some, you know, local agricultural fairs or some great agricultural fairs um, here in Georgia. And then from there, we started doing uh, larger competitions, um, including the national pie championship that happens every year down in Florida. And actually in 2017, I won the best of show in the amateur division at the national pie championships. And that was sort of our, our big award that sort of sent us on the trajectory for this book. 
Now, before you did that, were you just cooking for yourselves personally? Were you cooking for friends? Were did you started the blog already, or how did how did it go? Yeah, so I think uh, most of our lives uh, we've enjoyed cooking and baking, uh, and so yeah, most of what we did was was just for ourselves. We'd have dinner parties. Sometimes we'd bake things uh, to bring into work. It's really uh, casual weekend activities. And then uh, when you start adding things like county fairs and, and, and state fairs onto that, the volume increases uh, incredibly because you have to start developing new recipes, practicing those recipes, working out the kinks. And then certainly for the, uh, the big days of these competitions, uh, those can be uh, very long days uh, worth of baking. For, for example, for the, the state fairs, we tried to enter every category uh, that they offered. And so that it would be about, about 60 entries between us total. Yeah. Wow. That's a lot. <laughs> so again, our, our scientific uh, backgrounds came in handy there because that takes a lot of planning and uh, uh, logistics. So we would work out uh, these timetables and um, uh, spreadsheets to uh, make sure you know, we can track our ingredients. Um, um, and so it, it, it it's this gigantic enterprise to, to make sure you can get everything done on time, sort of as late as possible so that they're at their peak at, in time for judging. That's, that's yeah, pretty, pretty strong. Now, did you guys ever like sell them at a farmer's market or, or set up booths or anything like that to just sell them or was it always competition? Um, it started off as competition and then we actually put in a um, commercial licensed commercial kitchen in our home. Um, the way our home's configured, we were able to put in a licensed commercial kitchen, you know, with the the triple sink and everything. Um, and so it's licensed like a bakery, but without a retail storefront. But by the time um, all the construction was done and we got our permits, we had gotten the book contract. And so um, the we haven't really taken many orders. Um, we, we do occasionally when we have time, but it's really sort of turned into our home base uh, for um, testing our recipes for the book. So is it mostly you just do for friends and family or people that, <laughs> you know, that you know or like that you cook for right now? You don't really sell anything or? Uh, not really selling too much right now. And in fact, yeah. a, a lot of uh, uh, this, our, our, our test output uh, then it also gets shared because we certainly can't eat it all ourselves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, anytime we're developing something new, we would usually either bring it into our offices, share it with friends. We'll put out a call sometimes on something like Facebook saying, you know, we have an excess of pies right now. If anyone wants to stop by, you're welcome. Yeah, things like that. Yeah, that's one of the things I've always considered. You know, I I used to work in the restaurant industry when I was younger and I've always loved to cook. And every once in a while, I'll get the, you know, maybe I should start a restaurant and I remember how it was <laughs> like it's much easier to do a podcast or a blog or you know um, YouTube channel where I'm not having to worry about overhead and this that or, and you know you know cooking a, you know just enough food to sell out for the day and worried about waste and all that. right yeah there's a lot that goes into trying to sell product instead of talking about product <laughs> for sure <laughs> so I still get the urge every once in a while. People will ask me, well, you should sell, you know, there's so much more labor intensive and so much more you have to do when you start actually selling the stuff that you uh, (laughs) can tell people how to do and and probably, you know, do a better job at it. That's right. You just can't go out onto your porch and put up a shingle and say, hey, I'm going to be selling, selling my wares. Yeah. I mean, you can, I guess in Florida, you can do like if like baked goods you can do up to at a certain extent up to a certain amount but you know when you get into like meat and stuff like that you can't do it you gotta you gotta get a commercial kitchen and stuff you know you could actually do a limited uh here in florida without a commercial kitchen as far as baked goods and stuff go but um once you uh start uh having uh you know selling a lot more stuff i think it's fifteen thousand dollars a year is like the max then you gotta go to the whole commercial kitchen and all kinds of licensing and everything else and then you gotta you know try to hook up with a you know somebody that can uh, back you if you don't have your own commercial kitchen which at all that expense adds up and time and like i said it, it gets to be such a pain and then if you don't sell out you know you got wasted product that you can't do anything with so exactly here in georgia we have the cottage food law for baking too but we found it limiting because um it's it's and it is if i think for almost every state the food's for baked goods that you're allowed to sell are limited to those that are 
that um, don't have to be refrigerated. So no egg-based buttercreams, no custards, no cheesecakes, no pumpkin pies, no cream yeah. pies. Yeah, even like muffins with cheese in them, they, you know, you can't exactly. use. Exactly, yeah. So yeah, it's very limited. I ran into uh, somebody a couple weeks ago that was selling at a farmer's market, and that's we kind of had that discussion, and they're still kind of just doing it part-time. And, you know, they're they're the same way. They're like, you know, we just do this for fun because there's no way we could make money at it the way we're doing it right now. <laughs> right, yeah. You know, so um, so let's get back into the contest. So you, you did that one contest. What Where did you, you place, Paul? We talked about Chris uh, getting the blue ribbon. What did oh, you play? I got nothing. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah for, for that very first contest. Yeah, so there were only two prizes. There was they had just the two categories, sweet and savory pies. Uh, and so uh, I guess it, it was a good lesson in sort of knowing, really understanding the contest to know how to do uh, how to do well at it. So I um, was, uh, being that I was doing a savory pie, a, a meat pie, I figured I'd do something that would taste good, of course, nice and warm out of the oven, but would also still taste reasonably well at more towards room temperature. Um, interestingly, most of the folks that were in, uh, in town where the, that contest was happening uh, showed up, uh, they made sort of um, not traditional pies and pie plates, but like a, like a shepherd's pie in a, um, a chafing dish. Um, that they could put uh, some sterno underneath. So it was like, aha, wow, okay, so this is a a broader definition of pie than I realized, and they all serve their pies piping hot. So um, at least that's how I sort of justify it in my head. But um, I think it was still a a pretty tasty pie, if if I say so myself. Well, and all those contests are learning opportunities as well. I mean, it's I know a lot of guys that were in the barbecue competitions and – they're all kind of similar, you know, these competitions you're, you're cooking or you're baking for the one bite that that judge gets. And, you know, a lot of the barbecue guys, they don't cook the same for that competition that they do at home or for catering jobs or restaurant cooks. I mean, because they do a totally, you know, over the top, try to get that judge to remember their, you know, entry. So they do a lot of, you know, doctoring of the meat or, you know, adding different, you know, seasonings and honey and this and that, and, you know, than they ever would, um, you know, just cooking it for their family or, or at a, a you know, some event at home. So, but just, yeah, it, those things you learn that you're just cooking for that one bite and you, it's gotta be perfect. The right temperature, the right, you know, mouthfeel and all that, because they're tasting so many different other editors stuff right in front, you know, right after that. So. Absolutely. So it sounds like, you know, that kind of got you on the bug though. And you, and you started, uh, you know, pretty much entering anyone, any of the baking competitions that you could, you guys travel all around doing that or. Yeah. We, we, we started looking around for ones that were close to home. So we found, uh, uh, the surrounding counties, um, uh, here around Atlanta would, would have county fairs. And then of course that uh, Georgia has a nice big, uh, agricultural state fair, uh, every year in the fall. And so, you know, after trying out some of these smaller fairs and, and again, yeah, having some success at them, because I mean, I think we, as I said, we, we, we really do like baking. And so you know, coming up to these contests, um, it was really a good excuse to, you know, like, you know, let's, let's work on the cornbread and, and, and uh, you know, practice that several times, try and do some new and fun things with cornbread or, or biscuits or yeast breads, so like you know, all the different categories that they would have in, um, uh, in these contests. Um, in addition, um, I think Chris did a lot of uh, cookies and candies. Uh, we did cakes, so it, it was we, we got to um, do a lot of baking, which we enjoyed, and really helped polish our skills. So that when it came came time to do the contest, um, we were able to put out some some pretty good entry entries. So when did you start doing the blog and the Facebook page and all that? Um, the Facebook page sort of evolved. I had always posted um, before I did you know, so much pie, I had done cookie decorating. And so I'd always posted, you know, pictures of those things. And at some point, I just sort of split it off. And then, you know, when we, so when we make anything at home, I'll post a picture of it at a uh, flour, sugar, butter. So we have the Facebook page and the Instagram account. And then our website, uh, floursugarbutter.net, we have uh, a couple recipes on there, you know, some information um, about the book and things like that. So it's, it's probably, it's evolved. I, I think probably over the last maybe five years. Let's talk about how many ribbons have you won so far total, not just blue ribbons, but 
And how many how many years have you been doing the contest altogether now? So we've been doing the contest for eight years, I believe. And we have between us combined, we have over 600 awards now. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> That's dedication. So how many of those do you do, let's say, a month? It's really seasonal. Um, and so um, most of the agricultural fairs, uh, because of how they've you know, sort of what they support are in the fall um, because that's usually when the time when animals are ready to show, when crops are ready to be picked that are often included as part of the shows. Um, so those are usually in the fall, um, usually September, October. And then the National Pie Championship is usually in early spring, usually um, April or early May. Yeah. And then other little small things might pop up during the year. So do you also go to like the Florida State Fair and, and just like, you pick and choose what which contest you do, or no? For the most part, we stay within Georgia. Um, most of the other state fairs, um, state residency requirements. Yeah, there's some residency oh, okay. requirements, and it's the same way with some counties too. There are some counties either uh, very far north of Georgia or far south of Georgia, and you have to be either in that county or a neighboring county to be eligible. So you don't even trek up into Tennessee or anything like that, huh? No, I hope that would be illegal. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's good to know. I've just, I've never participated in any of those uh, competitions and especially at the state fair level or anything. So a lot of my audience hasn't either. I mean, it's just, um, you know, I, I, I know people that get in like with the competition barbecue, that is their hobby that, and they spend a lot of time in it instead of, you know, playing tennis or, you know, other sporting events. That's what they do as their uh, way to chill out or, um, you know, forget about life for a while kind of thing. They, they go and do that kind of stuff. So, and it sounds like that's what you guys do as well, right? Oh, absolutely. I think we spend um, a lot of our free time uh, thinking about baking, um, in fact, you know, doing something as, as simple as just going out and doing errands on the weekend. We'll be out grocery shopping or, you know, walking through some random uh, store and we'll get ideas. We'll, you find inspiration for, for uh, new flavors and, uh, and I guess new combinations of, of flavors all over the place. Uh, I think sometimes we'll, we'll be out at dinner. Uh, I think we've done this several times. So you, you sit down at dinner and the waiter comes over and says, yeah, would you like to have a drink from the bar? And you look at their cocktail menu and there's some, something unusual that you've never even heard of before. You'll, you'll ask me, like, what are the flavors in this Italian liqueur that you've never heard of? And he tells you what it is. And you think, my goodness, that would be make a great pie. Um, and so we'll make little notes of that and start figuring out, is that going to be a custard? Is that going to be a, a whatever? And, and we start building new new flavors and um, and ideas. Yeah, that that uh, when you start doing that, I mean, I do the same thing with cooking, and I'll watch. That's why I like to watch the Food Channel and stuff because I see I see somebody make a certain recipe, and I go, you know, I can probably tweak that and make it you know this or that, you know, change this a little here and there. And uh, I think most uh, you know people who love to cook do that. You know, they don't just. And that's kind of why I don't like baking because baking, you really got to hold to a recipe a lot of times, you know, it's kind of hard to tweak. You can tweak, you know, flavors here and there, but as far as the rest of it, you can't. So, Yeah. You have to be really intimately familiar with how uh, a, a baking recipe science works um, before you can really get in there and tweak it, you know, to something completely different. Now, have you guys ever been approached or thought about doing any of these, um, you know, TV shows like the, the, the baking challenges and all that that are going on? Um, I did the first season of Spring Baking Championship on Food Network. And how, how was that? Uh, it was it was fine. I mean, it was it was actually several years ago, and the, the show's still on. Um, but it was, you know, it, it, it was fine. It was, I don't necessarily feel that I would, you know, want to do something like that again. I, I like what we do with, you know, doing the recipe development here at home and, you know, writing the book. It's just a different, it's a more relaxed atmosphere, whereas the, you know, the fast, high-paced feeling of the the television studio is just, it's, I don't, I don't need any more stress in my life. <laughs> yeah, it's, I, I watched, you know, like Chopped and all those, and I just can't imagine being under that much pressure to try to come up with something or even a recipe that I'm, I'm familiar with 
in that type of situation, because even if you're comfortable with whatever you're making, you know, you're still got the pressure of, Oh, all these people are going to be watching this. And, you know, hopefully I look okay. And I'm not, you know, I'm not coming off as being an idiot or something. I mean, just all that pressure you have besides the pressure of the show itself, you know? So. Yeah. And I I think um, we, you know, you know, and I think this happens to a lot of people, you sort of have your best thoughts when your mind, you know, simmers on an idea for a little bit and you'll sort of wake up in the morning and go, Oh, now I know what I want to do. Or now I have a good idea on how to fix this problem I have with something that's not turning out. And so you don't, you don't have that advantage in such a fast paced environment. Right. Exactly. I understand. Exactly. I I think a lot of times the the premise of of some of the the challenges that they they show on those uh, contests are are actually impossible. So they might throw at you, you know, know, make the best, I don't know, pick something, ribs you possibly can in 30 minutes. And you think, well, I can't make my best ribs in 30 minutes. I, I can make you something in 30 minutes, probably. Uh, but it certainly won't be my best. And so then to be judged and say, wow, these are so tough and chewy or, or well, say, well, of course they are because I made them in 30 minutes. Yeah. Or, or like with chop where they just throw a basket of, you know, ingredients that don't even go together. And you, they, you, know, you got to try to put something edible together that they're going to like, and you're going up against four other people and they're all, you're all doing the same thing. So yeah. with, with using pie dough as an example, I mean, when we make pie dough, uh, it certainly doesn't take that long to combine the ingredients but uh, one of the essential steps is that the dough has to rest. And so we wrap it up in plastic, park it in the refrigerator, and we say at least several hours. We like to do it the day before. Um, so I think whenever we make pie, we always make our dough the, d- the day before. So if I was given that challenge, make your best pie and even give me three hours, I'd say, no, I can't do it. Um, yeah, I, I, needed to, I, I need a time machine so I could go back and make my pie dough yesterday. And, and now maybe I could make my best buy. Yeah. Right. Well, all right. Well, we're going to go ahead and take a little break right now, and then we'll be back and we'll talk a little bit more with uh, Paul and Chris. All right. I'll be right back. Hey, all I want to welcome again, Inkbird is our sponsor for the Fire and Water Cooking Podcast. Inkbird has more than just barbecue thermometers and instant read thermometers that I've talked about before. Inkbird just came out with a Wi-Fi sous vide circulator that I've been using for a few weeks now that works pretty good. Has over 1,000 watts of power. Has a app that has many times and temps for meats and vegetables. Also has onboard times and temps for meats and vegetables. Runs really quiet. Fits most regular sous vide containers that are the size of the Anovas. So check it out. Look below, there's a link with a code for 30% off of the Amazon price makes it under $60 right now. So check out the Inkbird Wi-Fi sous vide circulator in the description below. Back to our program. All right, we're back with Paul and Chris. They have the new book called The New Pie, and their website is Flour Sugar Butter. You can check them out. They've got um, everything baked goods, and the, the, the new pie is the new book that they have out. You can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, pretty much anywhere that you find books. So let's talk a little bit about um, one of the things, one of the reasons I kind of heard of you guys is because you're part of the International Sous Vide uh, Summit that happened in July um, this year. And you guys uh, did a presentation there about, um, and I guess some of the recipes in your book have used sous vide for the filling. So Let's talk about how you started incorporating sous vide into some of your recipes. Sure. Uh, So I I first had the idea, uh, and it it came straight out of the the cooking competitions. Uh, So many times when you're spending the time developing a new recipe, and and you put a lot of time and effort into figuring out how you want these flavors to work, um, you want to make sure that when the time comes to actually do that um, uh, recipe for the competition – it has to be reliable. It has to work for you. And I, I found um, after doing it for a couple of years that there's several variables that can happen in pie making um, that you really can't control. And so I, I started thinking about what are the tools that I have at my disposal um, that I could that I can more tightly control the outcomes. And sous vide is one of the ones that came to mind uh, because, as you know, it's it's a precision cooking technique. It allows me to cook whatever it is that I'm doing at that exact temperature. And that matters so much. Um, 
with with pies, let's say with, with a, a standard fruit pie, let's pick on apple, for example, so many things have to happen simultaneously. Um, and, and the traditional pie making methods, they're pretty blunt tools if you think about it. So basically, you start with some raw um, pie dough, pastry dough that you put in a, in a pie plate. You fill it with fruit, some quantity of sugar, some quantity of thickener. Um, uh, when I say by thickener, something usually like flour, cornstarch, tapioca, um, so that, that when the fruits start to cook and release their liquids, that will thicken those juices so it's not going to be a runny mess. Some flavorings, usually some spices, and, and, and all of that goes into the pie, sometimes covered with another layer of pastry dough, and you park it in the oven. So the oven, um, uh, you, it's going to be set usually at one temperature, and you're relying on uh, just the, the, the heat uh, to evenly cook the outside of the pastry, at the same time, heating up the fruit inside uh, to the perfect point, um, and then the liquid that's released from that fruit also has to reach a temperature to interact with the thickener. So those are three major things that have to happen because of temperature. Um, and if you think about it, the fact that the oven is just set at one temperature, all of those things have to reach where they need to go at the exact time so the pie isn't burnt, the fruit isn't overcooked. Um, Your juices haven't boiled over. Exactly. So it's 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 an almost impossible task. Um, and so standard um, pie making techniques, you usually get sort of rustic looking pies. Um, they traditionally tell you that you, you'll cook it until the, the crust is browned. You'll know that your, your liquids have thickened enough because they've started to bubble and boil. So uh, most of the time you'll have some, some juice that is splashed over the surface of your pie, sometimes dripped out onto the bottom of your oven. It's a mess. Um, and so sous vide can actually solve all of these problems uh, one by one. And so that was, that was my, my sole goal of trying to use sous vide in pies is just to solve those problems. But there was an added bonus that I'll get to in a minute. But how it solves these problems... Um, Fruits, when they, they start off in their raw state, uh, they usually have um, a, a more mild flavor. If you think about something like a blueberry, uh, it's, it's a pretty um, uh, sort of, I, I describe it as a nondescript wallflower of a fruit. It's a mild flavor. Once you cook that blueberry, the flavors really come alive. It transforms into a rich, much more luscious flavor, I think. But as you cook that fruit, if you cook it a little too much, it all falls apart and turns to mush. So you want to hit that exact spot where the flavors have transformed from raw to cooked, but the fruit is still holding together. And I can't think of a better way to do that than with sous vide. Yeah. One of the things I was, uh, I did my podcast with Meathead Goldwyn from Amazing Ribs. And his analogy is when you're trying to cook traditionally, you're on a train going a hundred miles an hour and trying to jump off the train at a station that it doesn't stop at, at the perfect time. Bingo. And what sous vide helps you do is slow the train down and park right at the, you know, where you want to be. So if you want to cook it to 131 degrees, you, you set your sous vide to 131 and it won't go past that. So it's, uh, that's that whole, yeah, train or bus or whatever you want to analogy. It's, you're not trying to hit it you know, perfect while it's going, you know, traditional cooking, it can, you know, overcook because of just a carryover cooking. With, with fruits, um, uh, all fruits contain a substance called pectin. Um, and what you'd like to be able to do is cook it to the point where uh, the pectin inside the fruit, so I guess the, the fruit, as, as, it, as it heats, it's going to swell, burst open some of those cells, which, which release the liquid. That's all the, the fruit juice that uh, will accumulate. Um, and, but then the, the pectin that's in the fruit, uh, when it reaches a certain temperature, it'll start to, um, form these little cross linkages so that it, it forms its own internal gel structure. Um, and so that's the temperature that you want to aim for to cook that fruit. And it turns out that that magic number is, is about 150 degrees for, for, uh, standard pie fruits that contain pectin. So the other nice thing about, uh, sous vide is those liquids that get released, Normally, that happens inside the pie. So if I happen to get some um, particularly juicy apples, maybe my fruit 
pie is going to end up being too wet and soupy because I didn't know how much liquid was going to be released from those apples once they cooked. On the other hand, they may have been kind of dry or, or, or not so juicy apples. And so now the when I guessed at how much thickener to add, I'm going to have this thick, gloppy, pasty apple pie because I didn't know what my apples were going to do once they cooked. But with sous vide, I put all my apples um, and my, my sugar and my spices inside the bag, drop it into the water. Once they've finished cooking to that perfect temperature, um, I can measure. And that's exactly what I do. I usually cut a small hole in the bag and I decant off all the liquid that's inside that bag, leaving all the, the solid fruits still in the bag. And I put it right into a measuring cup. And I know that I got three quarters of a cup of juice or a cup and a half of juice or, or whatever it actually was. And now I don't have to guess anymore at how much thickener I, I, need to, I need to add. I can add the perfect amount of thickener so that I can, you know, then I fold that back into my fruits. And so now it's a perfectly thickened. It's not too soupy. It's not too pasty. It's exactly how I want it. Now, so when you use the sous vide method for your fruit and all that, do you cook the uh, shell separately or the, cr the crust, or do you still put it all in there and then cook it all together? I use different methods for different pies. And in fact, uh, throughout the book, uh, you'll notice, uh, so we have some sous vide recipes, some non-sous vide recipes, some double crust pies. And what I mean by that is that's one where all the contents are going to go into raw pie dough, both top and bottom, and it bakes that way. And then other ones are called blind baked. That's where you pre-bake the bottom crust. You can then fill it, sometimes even add a topping, like a, let's say a, a crumb topping. Um, but um, um, I mentioned to you that there was sort of a, this added bonus feature of using sous vide. Um, and this is something that I learned after I started doing uh, the sous vide. I, I didn't even realize I was going to get this bonus. Pectin that I mentioned before that starts to set at 150 degrees, turns out that that is a, a heat-stable gel when it forms. So what that means is once you take the fruit out of the, the water bath, it immediately starts to cool down a little bit. And I and this is when I'm sort of manipulating the liquids or whatever it is that I'm doing to finish my filling. Those fruit uh, pieces have started to cool slightly. And when that happens, the pectin sets into that heat-stable gel form. And what that means is that when I reheat those fruits in the oven, which they're about to be reheated when I'm baking the pie, that gel um, isn't going to break down as easily as it did before. So if I just cook an apple right away on, on the stovetop, let's say, it'll go from raw to perfect to applesauce just you know, while I'm there on the stove. If I, if I recook these fruits that have already um, reached their, their set point of 150 and cooled somewhat, it now would take a whole lot more heat to break down those fruits. So they actually retain their shape and form. So what that means for you is when you recook these fruits in a pie, um, they, they still have some chew. Uh, the, the, the most magical one is the blueberries. So blueberries that uh, sort of fall apart so easily when you're cooking them, they in the end, you still have all perfect little spheres of blueberry inside your pie that when you bite into it, has the, a nice chew of a, of, of a fruit, um, but that rich taste of a cooked blueberry. Well, and, and then I do a lot of this when, when I make chicken, you know, uh, sous vide and put it on the smoker afterwards. Uh, and people don't understand it. I'll cook it, uh, a spatchcock, you know, whole chicken sous vide for 148 degrees for four hours. And then I'll take it out and add a little bit more seasoning and then put it on a smoker that's at 275 or, or hotter, you know, 350 even. And it takes it a lot longer to go from that 148 that it stopped cooking at mm -hmm. any hotter. It'll sit there at 148 for a good 45 minutes to an hour before the internal temperature of that chicken starts rising again. And so it, it gives that time for the skin to get crisp and get some smoke to it. And so it doesn't really go over, if at all, the, the sous vide cooking time. And that's, uh, you know, people always, I'll, I'll put up on my Facebook group, you know, here's how I did this. And they're like, well, your, your chicken had to get overcooked. It had to go up to, you know, 300 degrees internal. It's like, no, it just sat there. And I sit there, I'll put an internal temperature and I'll, you know, show it. Look, it's been in here for 45 minutes and the internal temp is still 148. So that has to do with like, wasn't that the, the, the water vapor that's evaporating off to the surface of your meat? Yeah, I think it's part, it's evaporative cooling, but I think it's, it's, um, you know, there's gotta be something more to it as well. You know, 
you know, evaporative cooling is what the stall is when you cook a pork butter or brisket for a long period of time. But I think that has a, it has a lot to do with it as well. So. Yeah. But I mean, I, I've, I've, uh, I've really been blown away. So it, it not only makes it more reliable and which was the, my original goal. Uh, so I wanted to make sure that my pies didn't fail on me when I, when I needed them most. Um, but I think it actually ends up making better pies. Um, the, the quality of the, the, the contents of the pie, um, are, are so much better. Uh, and we do it with so many different fruits. We make, um, apple, plum, um, you know, cranberry, um, yeah, the blueberry, um, uh, uh, we do a lemon pie, uh, sous vide. Uh, it's, uh, it, it's been a, a, a real uh, boon to um, uh, the way we make fruit pies. Now, have you started using it with any custards or anything like that? Because I know you can make custards and creme brulee and stuff with, with sous vide. Yeah, we've started playing around with that. It's, it's a little trickier with pie. Like with a, a, a creme brulee, a lot of times people will do that in um, uh, mason jars um, because if you think about it, when, when an egg um, reaches its setting temperature, it's going to retain its shape. So that's, um, that's an irreversible gel when it, when it forms. Um, and so you can gently bring it up to that temperature where it, it forms its gel um, in a mason jar. Um, if you're doing that in a bag, if you, if you bring it all the way up to, let's say, 160 degrees or, or something like that where, where it's going to set, and, and I now have a, a custard shaped like a bag, yeah. not you know, shaped like a pie. Um, and so uh, we've, we've played around with some things because I guess eggs start to um, reach their gelling point at around 130 degrees, and they are, they're fully set. And certainly by you know, 165. And so you, you have a little bit of a, a range there where you can get them really close to their setting point or even starting to set, but it's still liquid and, and, and pourable. And so we've done that with a pumpkin pie so far. So where you bring it up um, uh, where it's, it's still it's still liquid and moving um, and you can pour it right into a hot pie shell and let it set. And doing that will help you because if you are trying to cook a pumpkin pie traditionally sometimes if you overcook it you'll end up with you know the edges near the crust they're a little drier and crumbly and the salt the center is perfectly done um, but if you put the custard in at 130 degrees into a hot pie shell and finish the baking that way it's a much more even heat and it doesn't have that far to go so you don't have that temperature differential from the edge to the center because your pie only bakes for 20 minutes or so. Yeah. And again, here, here's how science can help you. I mean, if you've, if you've ever made a pumpkin pie, I think every recipe that's out there will talk about you bake it for a certain amount of time and then you're supposed to start um, peeking into the oven and jiggling your pie where it's, it's wobbling somewhat in the center because you don't want it to be fully set. But, and everyone who's ever done that is sitting there wringing their hands. It's like, well, it's, it's, it's very wobbly. Is that too wobbly? Is it supposed to be wobbly like jello, wobbly like? And so uh, if you know the temperatures that you actually need to meet, um, it, it certainly makes life so much easier. You've got some objective measures you can, you can follow. Yeah. It's, I think I read in one of your articles that um, where you guys were interviewed, you said a lot of the recipes that you found earlier, you know, in your baking uh, careers is that, you know, just add a pinch of this or, you know, stir it till it looks like this. <laughs> you know, my wife had that come to, she's tried to follow a, uh, coconut cake recipe her aunt gave her and one of them was just spin a thread and she's like what's spin a thread mean i don't understand what you're talking about so some of those uh you know grandma you know recipes where you, you really don't know what they're talking about exactly and and one of the things we've incorporated um in the book too in sort of our efforts for you know more precise more reliable baking is um we really encourage um readers and pie makers to weigh their ingredients um, you know, for a number of reasons, it's, you know, you dirty less dishes, but it's also more accurate. Your recipes are reliable, they're repeatable. And it, it really makes a difference for something like pie dough, where it's such a simple, you know, component, it's just flour, fat and water. Um, but flour is notoriously mismeasured. If you were to spoon all purpose flour into a dry measuring cup, um, if you spoon it in lightly, you could end up with a cup of flour that weighs, you know, four and a quarter ounces. If you were to scoop that same cup into an open bag of flour and level it off, you could get something closer to five ounces of flour. And for a pie dough that maybe only uses a cup and a half, 
that's a really big difference. You can end up with a couple ounce difference, which then you're trying to add a set amount of water, you know, to make into a dough that's supposed to be able to roll out without being sopping wet and sticky or without being too dry that's going to crack on you. And so we we really try to promote um, weighing the ingredients. And we're glad to see that a lot of – there are a number of cookbook authors that are in agreement with us. We're certainly not the pioneers for this, um, but there are still some cookbook authors that I think need to to join us in that. I think it just – it makes for more reliable baking and, and happier readers. Well, and I've, he- I've heard that. I've got friends of mine that are big into making homemade pizza dough and – there, that's a big thing with them as well, using uh, weights instead of you know cups and and you know they they actually use the weight because it, it you can get more precise, it's like you said, you know, uh, twelve ounces of you know flour is always going to be twelve ounces of flour, where you know four cups could be you know five cups, it could be three cups because of the way it's sitting in the cup, you know, exactly right, yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about the book a little bit because I've talked to some other people who've written books and that they're first time authors and, um, they, uh, you know, have all had the experience of going through it. Like, uh, a lot of them have told me it's like giving birth to a baby. So <laughs> how was that all experience uh, with writing your first uh, cookbook? It was actually a lot of fun for us. I, I think we had a, a little bit of an advantage over some folks in that, I guess as scientists, we've done a lot of scientific writing. Um, and so, you know, in terms of, you know, writing articles about, you know, you know, I've written a ton about malaria, things like that. And so I think we're, we're used to organizing our thoughts, you know, coming up with work plans of how to get things done and, um, um, and uh, writing clearly so that uh, uh, sort of thinking about not just what I want to say, but how it's going to be received by the person reading it so that it'll be clear to them. Uh, we're all, we've also, um, as regularly as part of our jobs, um, we receive regular criticism, you know, about our writing. So, you know, if we were to write something, you know, people that I work with review it, and then it goes out to, uh, you know, it's called a peer-reviewed journal. So peers in your field, experts in your field review what you write, and then, you know, the editor of the journal will send you notes back saying, you know, this is what some people think you should change. You're not quite accurate enough in this. Could you fix this? And so I think that's really helpful too. You know, if you're, for example, if you're a food blogger um, and you've only written for yourself or for your website, um, to maybe get criticism from a professional author at a publisher um, can be a little jarring. We, I think we were very fortunate. We had, we have a great editorial team at Clarkson Potter, and our I think our background with uh, scientific writing was a big advantage. Yeah, it sounds like um, if you. If you're used to writing reports or you're you're used to writing papers or articles already, you you definitely have a oh, advantage over somebody who's never done it before. And and the couple of people that I've talked to, like I said, they they were strictly you know one of the guys was a cop and then he had a YouTube channel and so somebody said, hey, I want you to write a book about sous vide and barbecue together. <laughs> he's like, okay, it's something I've never done before. And he's you know it. it that uh, he said, but once he got that experience down, you know, after the fact, it was, he could do it again. You know, it's now that he's got some experience under his belt, but they said that, you know, when he was going through it, it was more of a, you know, am I ever going to get this done? How, you know, and, and going back and forth because, you know, since he didn't have the experience going back and forth with the publisher on drafts was a lot more, a lot more, like you said, that critiquing that he wasn't used to. <laughs> <laughs> so the other nice thing is that being that Chris and I were writing it together, um, it, it was great to be able to you know, say, if I had a great idea and I, I started writing and I get to the point and say, okay, I'm, I've, I've hit a wall. I'm not sure where to go with this next. I just, you know, we just tag team and I would just send it over to Chris and say, all right, um, see where I'm going. What are your thoughts? And then that gives me a break. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not, uh, hurting myself trying to think about it so hard he gives it a whirl sends it back to me and and honestly that synergy of just being able to tag team back and forth um i think also really helped us um uh, helped us out i think it helped too with um that, that certainly helped with more of the creative aspects of the book like our head notes and our stories but I, it also helps too where you know there you know when we came into this book we brought in um you know many of the recipes that we use that were sort of award winners for our competition so paul had his recipes I had my recipes because, you know, we, we develop our own pies for these competitions. And so it was helpful too, where, um, if I had a recipe 
um, I would share it with Paul and Paul was able to review it and say, oh, I see what you're saying here about, you know, when it boils, but, you know, with that not being a pie that Paul has made, you know, he'll have questions. And so that's helpful for me because I can go, oh, I see. I have to make this more clear. This this should be what it looks like when you're doing that, or this should be what it smells like, or this should be how long you do it. So when you look at some of the recipes in the book, you know, some of the steps might seem long, but it's not because it's a lot of work. We tried to give a lot of clues as to, you know, what something should look like, what something should smell like, if, you know, what temperature it should reach to really help people, especially people who aren't familiar with some of these, um, you know, if you're not familiar making cream pies, if you're someone who grew up you know, only making fruit pies, you know, to help you achieve success by giving you all the clues that you can. Um, so you know what to look for. Yeah, that's great. So let's talk about some pies. So I'm going to release this probably beginning in November and that's going to be around Thanksgiving time when everybody's looking for different pie recipes. So hopefully we'll, they'll be uh, looking for your book, the new pie for this. So available on Amazon and anywhere you buy books. So let's talk about what are some of your favorite holiday pies you may have in the book for people to look at? Oh, gosh. I guess the easy answer is, gosh, they're all our favorites. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, because honestly, if, if you opened the book uh, to a random page uh, and asked me why that page or the pie on that page was my favorite, I'm sure I can tell you why something that, that's great about that pie. I guess thinking about some of the, the traditional um, Thanksgiving flavors, um, things like apple, pecan, um, a pumpkin, pumpkin, of course. Yeah. We have a great um, take on a classic pumpkin pie in the book um, called uh, Dulce de Pumpkin. And it's it's a sort of a step up from a traditional pumpkin pie. It's a, it's a great custardy pie, you know, pumpkin pie base, um, not too much um, spice to it. Um, and then what we do is after it's cooled, we put on a layer of uh, Dulce de Leche, which is a, um, it's a caramel made from sweetened condensed milk. And you can often buy it in um, grocery stores. And so just a layer of that on top. And then right before serving um, a sprinkling of like toffee bits, like you get from the baking aisle of the grocery store. So you have, you know, that pumpkin pie, you get a little bit of additional sweetness, but also a little bit of darkness from that uh, dark dulce de leche caramel, and then a crunch from the toffee bits. And then another one we have is, um, what we call an all-in-one Thanksgiving pie. So it, it's actually a bunch of uh, pie flavors in one. It has a um, no-bake apple um, cinnamon cheesecake, a layer of cranberry um, sauce, and then it's topped with a pumpkin custard. Yep. Oh, you, you, forgot, you forgot the topping on that one. Oh, it's a, it's a warm pump, uh, pecan pie gravy. Wow. Yeah, those are the type that I like when it's a take on a traditional in it, but it you know, bumps it up a little bit, or it's just a little bit different and it's easy to do like that pumpkin pie that you said, you know, it sounds like something that it's very similar to a traditional, but it's got that little extra kick that it's not hard to do. And, uh, that's the kind of stuff I like to, to mess around with. Yeah. We actually have three different apple pies in the book as well. So we have the sous vide apple pie, which is the apple pie that's on the cover of the book. Um, so it's, it's, it's probably the most traditional, pie in the book in that it's 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 just an apple pie although it's uh it's a uh, modern spin is that it's, it's made the filling is made using sous vide um and it really i have to say i think that's probably the the best apple pie ever i mean just in terms of a, a traditional straightforward apple pie but then uh, two other ones that we have um we've got uh, one that uh sort of pre-roasts the fruit uh in the oven so it's more like a uh an applesauce mincemeat style apple pie and um, a third one where the apples are actually cooked on the stovetop first. Um, so again, depending on what you know you have available to you, um, uh, and uh, sort of what, what your skill level is, you you can choose one of the different styles of apple pie. I was just say, or if you're you know non traditional, or um, we we've been joking too that as we, you know, we go around and do these book events, we we meet people that where it turns out Thanksgiving is sort of a contest like a pie contest for some families, they try to one up each other on like who can bring the best pie or the, or the best dessert. And so we, the, one of our focuses in the book is we, we do have some fun modern flavors. So if you're trying to bring in, you know, something else to impress your family or friends, we certainly have that. We have um, a pie that's made with beets. We called the unbeatable. And so 
I think at first glance, some people think, oh, that's a little weird for a dessert pie, but we turn, you know, carrots are a root vegetable that we turn into a pie and sweet potatoes are a root vegetable. Um, beets are great. They have a great earthy flavor. Um, they pair well with um, autumn spices like cinnamon and a little bit of clove. Um, and so we have that custard pine that's topped with a um, sweet uh, goat cheese uh, frosting, or you can make it with cream cheese if you're not into goat cheese. Um, one of the pies that's pictured actually on the back of the book is called Saturday Morning Cartoon Cereal. And so that's a no-bake cream pie um, that's made with um, mascarpone cheese, which is an Italian cream cheese you can find at your grocery store. And um, it's infused with the flavor of Fruity Pebble breakfast cereal. (laughs) And then it's topped with a streusel of other fruity breakfast cereals like Fruit Loops, um, Trix, and uh, Cap'n Crunch Berries. (laughs) Wow. I, I'll, I'll throw out another fun one. We've got one that's um, it's a fizzing root beer float pie. So it, it's a, a cream pie that tastes just like a root beer float. But one of the, uh, the, the little fun feature we have in there, if you're mm. familiar with the candy called Pop Rocks, we have some uh, uh, chocolate-coated Pop Rocks that we put inside the pie so that when you actually eat a piece of the pie, you, the first thing you notice is that, gosh, this tastes like a root beer float. But then it starts to fizz in your mouth. Um, and so people usually get that fun surprise. Yeah, that that fruity pebble uh, cakes or pie sounds amazing. So I'm gonna have to try that one out. So what do you guys got planned for the future? Are you gonna do any more books? Are you gonna expand into cakes or any other pastries or baked goods or what do you got in the future? Sure, we'd love to do more books. I'd say for for now we're we're focusing on uh, promoting this book and sort of evangelizing pie around the country right now. We've been uh, giving some classes, uh, teaching people some pie techniques. Um, but, uh, yeah, we've, we've already started recipe development and testing, um, uh, for new things, uh, that will hopefully go into uh, book number two. Because yeah, we do all kinds of baking and it's something, you know, because we've done the baking for the fairs over the year. And so in addition to pie, we've always entered, you know, cakes, cookies, you know, I taught myself how to make candies just so we could enter things into a candy category. Um, yeast breads, quick breads, you know, we do all kinds of things. So, you know, I, I really like the approach we took to the pie book. And I think if we could do that on, um, you know, another baked good, I think that would be a lot of fun. Yeah. And if you got such, you know, good success with the pie book, uh, I think you're going to, people are going to start looking, looking for you guys, you know, for other things as well. So you get to expand that, um, the flour, sugar, butter, uh, website, is that, strictly you know to promote your your books and and the blog and everything yeah so it's just sort of all about us so if we have recipes we'll share them there um in some blog posts like our um for example our um perfect pie crust recipe is on there and then um you know it also has links to our instagram and facebook account um it tells and um, also has links um where to buy the book um and then also um there are some places where we have some signed copies of the books and we have links to those stores on there as well. That's flowersugarbutter.net. And then we also put our calendar up there for where we're doing um, uh, book events or, or you know, you know, public appearances if people want to come out and you know, get their book signed or meet us and ask us their questions in person. Yep. Yeah. That's all. So there. how uh, has the contests kind of stopped since you had to do all the book uh, promotions and book signings and all that? We're doing as many as we can. It, it is tricky um, doing some other events and then obviously, you know, working a, a regular nine to five job to trying to fit in everything. So um, we try to do it when we can, but we're not able to do all of them. Yeah. That's right. And once, once you get more popular, I'm sure it's going to get uh, even more tricky. <laughs> exactly. And it's, yeah. a, it's a good yeah. thing though, to be able to do something that was a hobby at one time that you can turn into something, you know, that can make money for you as well. I mean, I think that's everybody's dream to do something you really love to do. Um, to be able to, uh, you know, start your own business doing that. And I think a lot of, you know, like with this, with your guys' book, you know, it's something that you guys just really love to do as a hobby, and now you're able to make a little bit of money off of it. Exactly. And and spread the love, spread, you know, you know, teach people how to, you know, make, you know, you're not doing it, you know, nefariously. You're actually teaching people, and then they're enjoying it, so. Exactly. Pie is such a classic American dessert, and so, you know, to be able to have our own spin on it in a book out there and really expand what people's definition of pie is, I, it, it's a really cool thing. And I think that's another reason why I like doing what I'm doing, because I have a lot of people tell me, hey, you know, you've helped me this, you helped, you know, I've tried this, it's great, you know, I've learned a lot from you. I mean, that makes me feel a lot better than, you know, hey, I bought this from you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
you know? So, all right, guys. Well, I want to thank you for coming on. Um, it's been great. Uh, I'm glad that uh, I got hooked up with you guys through the uh, International Sous Vide Association. Um, are you guys going to make it out to next year's in San Francisco or? Yes, that's, we're, we're planning on it. Um, I'm planning on it too. If, you know, hopefully if nothing else comes up, but, um, I, I was supposed to go to this one this year, but I, I it wasn't in the plans, you know, for the cards for me, I was invited by Mike and Jason, but, um, I'm hoping that I can do it, uh, next, next year as well, or this coming year. So it's going to be a good time. So, um, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. It's, uh, Paul Argent and Christopher Taylor. Their book is called the new pie. You can find that on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, anywhere you find books. Um, you can also check out their website, flour, sugar, butter. That's got their blog and some recipes. Check it out. Thanks, Paul and Chris. I appreciate it. Thank you, Darren. Thank you. All righty. And we'll see you again sometime soon. And hopefully I'll see you out at the International Sous Vide Association's uh, Summit next year. Sounds, Sounds good. good. We'll see you there. All right. Thanks again. Well, thanks again for joining us here on the Fire and Water Cooking Podcast. I want to thank Paul and Chris again for joining me here. Check out their book, The New Pie. You can find it on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, anywhere you find books. And make sure you follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and check out the Fire and Water Cooking channel on YouTube. And I'll see you again on the next Fire and Water Cooking Podcast.